Hi, everybody. This is Matt Goldberg, and welcome to Confabulation, the podcast. Confabulation is Montreal's premier all-true storytelling series. Every month we have true stories told live by the people that experience them, and every month we also feature a podcast uh, which focuses on one of these stories and the storytellers uh, in the hopes to bring you just a little bit closer to the experience of coming to one of our live events. For this episode of Confabulation, the podcast, we have Catherine Hands in studio. Catherine is a liaison librarian at McGill University in the Education Library, and by studio, I mean to say that she's here uh, in the apartment that we share. Uh, because we live together and are married. Uh, this is a fact that I don't hide at Confabulation, but the fact is that Catherine's told a number of stories at the event, and uh, I'm kind of happy to have her stand on her own as a storyteller, not just as as the wife of the producer. But, uh, you know, she's pretty great, so I'm glad to have her on the show. Uh, now I'm all embarrassed. Well, the story we're going to be hearing, though, is Catherine's very first story from Confabulation, and it's actually one um, that I've talked to about with a lot of people, with a lot of fans of Confabulation. We've had it on the website for, um, well, since it since it featured on the show, in December of, I want to say 2009? Nope. Uh, 2010. Sorry, 2010. How long has Confabulation been going on for? Three years. So 2010, December. And um, this story was really remarkable to me for a number of reasons. Uh, when Catherine first talked about doing a story on Confabulation, she told me that she wanted to talk about her family, and that was fine. It was for a December event where we feature stories about families, and uh, we share experiences uh, of our relationships to our families, and sometimes even um, just the, those family stories, the stories that get passed down through generations. But what was really remarkable for me about Catherine's story is the way that she chose to frame it. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later after we listen to the story. Um, but it makes me really think about one of my favorite things. And I probably, say that, I probably say this every episode. I have a lot of favorite things about confabulation stories. Uh, but something I talk a lot about in workshops when we're preparing to tell these stories uh, is what I think of as the framing device. That is to say, uh, the mechanism by which we get into the story. Uh, Catherine, I know, uh, spent a ton of time working on how she was going to frame this story and this experience, both to make it about her family and to make it about herself. Uh, but it's something I like to think about a lot when I want to share a story or when I get ready to share a story with an audience. Do I start in the present day and what inspired me to jump into the story? Or do I start with uh, the very beginning of this happening? Do I talk about one day I woke up and I was diabetic? Or do I start in the hospital and how did I get here anyway? Or do I talk about 10 years out, here I am waiting in a doctor's office how have I gotten to this point with my, with my disease in my life? Where we choose to enter a story changes the experience of the story. And it comes back to one of the things I love most about Confabulation, one of the things I love most about doing this podcast, which is it gives us an opportunity not just to hear a great story from someone's life and from someone's past, we also get to understand a little bit better how their appreciation of those moments and of those stories change over time, how the way they view the person that they were changes. I mean, really, any story we listen to on Confabulation, any story we tell to another person, it's always our best recollection. It's our best understanding of that story, given who we are today, given where we are today. And Catherine's story does this, I think, extremely well. Let's give it a listen. So a couple of years ago, my grandpa called me on my birthday. Now, Grandpa and I don't really talk on the phone very often, but he does usually make the annual birthday call. 
So, you know, we're talking on the phone and we don't usually have that much to talk about. But this particular year, my brother was traveling in Europe. So we started to talk about that. And I just heard from my brother the day before and he was in Paris. And so I started telling grandpa about what Christopher was, was seeing in Paris. And I said, like, you know, he went up the Eiffel Tower yesterday, et cetera, et cetera. And then grandpa interrupted me and he's like, oh, well, Catherine, you know, I've been to Paris. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that grandpa. When were you in Paris? And very casually he said, oh, it was in 1940. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> okay. I have a lot of respect for Indiana Jones. And this is for two reasons. The first is he is terribly afraid of snakes. And the second, is he fights Nazis. <laughs> and when I was a kid, my two biggest fears in the whole world were snakes and Nazis. <laughs> and I don't really think that my fear of snakes is terribly exciting or original or interesting. A lot of people have that phobia. But my fear of Nazis is a little bit more complicated. So I'm going to talk about that. Growing up, I really associated being German with food. Lots of food. My German grandmother was one of these like, crazy European relatives who has two kitchens in her house, like one in the basement and then one on the main floor in case there's some type of you know, cooking or baking emergency. She always has access to two fridges, two freezers, two stovetops, two ovens. So there was always a lot of food at grandma's house. And I think my two most vivid memories of going to my grandmother's were seeing like a table just covered in cake, like a ridiculous number of cakes. And then my next memory is really lying on the floor in my grandparents' living room with a horrible stomach ache. And I remember this one time and my aunt like came over to me and she started like poking at my stomach and she was worried I had like appendicitis or something like that because I was in so much pain. I'm like, no, I just, you know, I ate too much cake because we would always eat too much at grandma's house. When I was in grade five, um, my teacher decided to read us the diary of Anne Frank in November for Remembrance Day. And for the first time, um, being German suddenly had a, a different significance. It meant a little bit more to me than eating too much black forest cake at my grandmother's house. And that was the year that the nightmares started for me. And it was always the same situation. I was always hiding somewhere. Sometimes it was in like an attic type room, like Anne Frank. Sometimes it was like behind a bookshelf, behind a door, under floorboards. And the Nazis would be in pursuit of me. And I would be in this enclosed space. And then I would always wake up just at the moment of discovery. And these nightmares got more and more intense. And I had them more and more often. And it got to the point that I came up with this set of rules before I went to bed um, that to protect me, that would like magically protect me from the Nazis and my nightmares. So I had these things like, okay, if you sleep on your right side, the Nazis won't be able to find you tonight. If you put like layer this one blanket um, under another blanket, the Nazis won't find you. If you hold your breath for 30 seconds, the Nazis won't find you. So I had all of these like pre-bed routines that I do because I was terrified. And at the same time, I suddenly had all of these questions, these questions that I wanted to ask my dad. And the big question was, so what did grandpa do during World War II? And my dad reassured me that my grandfather was not a Nazi. My grandpa came from a very, very devout Catholic family in East Prussia, so in the like, northeastern area of Germany. 
And the area that he lived in was actually very anti-Hitler and anti-Nazi, and at least the Catholic community there was. My grandfather's closest uncle was a parish priest, and he was also the principal of a local high school. And he was very, very outspoken in some ways against Hitler and against the Nazis. And his particular issue was with the idea of having like the Hitler youth and being a high school principal. He really had a problem with this. So my grandpa used to help out um, his uncle by um, transporting these anti-Nazi documents. He used to roll them up and take his bicycle apart and put these documents inside of his bicycle. And then he would deliver them to this sort of network of this underground network of like Catholic priests in different towns who were opposed to the Nazis. So they shared information that way. My grandpa used to ride his bike from town to town and from parish to parish delivering these documents. So grandpa was not a Nazi, but... In 1939, just like every other man in Germany, he was drafted into the army. And so, um, you know, he became a German soldier. And the first, um, the first part of the war, he really, again, he spent it transporting things, perhaps because of his connection with his uncle, who disappeared actually one night, his uncle, who was a priest and, and a principal. And, my grandfather has no idea what happened to him. He never saw or heard from him again. So perhaps because of that connection or my grandfather's association with the Catholic Youth Organization, he, um, he wasn't trusted. So for the first while, the first bit of the war, he wasn't actually given a firearm. And his job was to drive a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, from like location to location delivering supplies. So grandpa wasn't a Nazi, but, you know, I still sort of had some, some unsettled feelings um, about the war. In my parents' house, we have a picture of my grandfather in his German army uniform. And it also um, happens to be my grandparents' wedding photo because my grandparents got married during World War II. Um, there's a bullet hole through the left-hand side of the photograph. And this is care of a passing Russian soldier who passed through um, my grandmother's town during the war. And, and this was a common thing, a lot of looting and, and stuff happened when you know, soldiers were passing through towns and German soldiers did the same thing in Russia. But they just basically went through my grandmother's house and randomly started shooting things. They shot her guitar and they shot the photo because of course there's a picture of my grandfather in his, in his army uniform. They then took my grandmother, her sister, other members of her family and everyone else who lived in the town took them out to the town square and lined them up. And at this point in the war, really the only people left in the town were women and children and really old men. So they lined them up and they were prepared to systematically shoot them all. And for some miraculous reason, a Russian officer who was higher up in command than the soldiers who had come in originally came into town literally at that particular moment, saw what was happening and stopped them. So my grandmother miraculously survived. When I was in high school and we were talking about, you know, the war in history class, I really wanted to bring this photo in to school. because so I thought this was such a fantastic story, like a terrifying story, but just a really fantastic story. But I never actually had the guts to bring this photo to school. And I think part of that was just the idea of seeing somebody in this German uniform. And it was just a regular German soldiers uniform there were no swastikas there was nothing like that but I just I felt really uncomfortable and I think that comes from some experiences that I had when I was in high school um, when I was in grade nine uh, 
in English class, we'd watched a movie about the Holocaust. I don't, I don't remember what it was now, but I do remember the activity that my teacher decided we should play, um, or the game she thought we should play after we watched the movie. And this was a Nazi elimination game that she played with our class. So <laughs> she essentially, based on her understanding of ethnic and racial politics in Nazi Germany, she went through our very multicultural class and decided who would have survived the Holocaust and who would have died. So at the end of going through 30 people, there was one survivor. And yes, as the blonde-haired German girl, that person was me. And that was probably about a month into the school year. So for the rest of the school year, I felt so great coming to school and sitting down and being in this very multicultural classroom as the one survivor of our Simu Holocaust. So... Yeah, and the, the thing that is, is terribly unfortunate is that these Nazis that I had in my na nightmares did not play by the same rules as Miss Dormer in her grade nine English class. So in my nightmares, the Nazis were still my number one enemy and I was still having these nightmares in high school. I was still terrified. I think that if my grandfather had to choose his number one enemy, it would be a really tight race but I think in the end, the Russians would probably win that race. After my grandfather had his excursion to Paris, um, <laughs> the, our, my grandfather and the rest of, of Army Group North got the pleasure of fighting um, the war on the Eastern Front. And if anyone knows European history, you can probably imagine that Fighting wars in Russia don't often have happy endings for many people, and in many ways it was the same for my grandfather. Now, my grandpa was lucky because he had actually been educated. He had a college education. So when he got drafted into the war, they made him a communications officer. And this suited him just fine because I think he was a lot more comfortable playing with radios other than playing with guns. So one night during the siege of Leningrad, my grandfather was in an empty, abandoned home when um, the Russians started firing on them. And the way that my dad tells the story is that a bullet came through the window, it ricocheted off of a piano, and then it hit my grandfather in the abdomen. Now, sort of the thing, um, maybe the, the spoken or unspoken, you know, sort of rule in the German army was, yeah, it's really bad, you know, if you die, obviously, from a Russian attack, but it's 10 times worse if you survive and you get captured and taken to a Russian prisoner of war camp. And that's exactly what happened to my grandfather. He somehow survived this bullet wound only to be captured and taken to a Russian POW camp. And I think thinking back to the nightmares that I used to have when I was a kid, what really, really scares me is that moment of capture, that moment of hiding and then being like sought out and found and taken against your will. And there's something about that that is so terrifying to me. And in any books I've read about the Holocaust, any movies I've seen, that is what scares me the most. It's almost like after, after that moment of capture, it's, it's all over. Like the tension for me is gone because at that point, you don't have any agency. You're literally at the mercy of somebody else. And my grandfather, for five years, was at the mercy of the Russian army. He spent from, 19, um, from the 19, 1944 until 1949 building a roadway in Russia. And 
anyone who knows anything about about Russian history and European history probably knows that um, the Russians weren't really big on following rules, things like, you know, Red Cross standards um, for prisoners during times of war. So there was very little mercy to be had. As a kid, I knew that my grandfather was was a prisoner of war. Um, He sometimes would talk about it, but it was always in almost a jovial way. Like the story I remember the most is him telling us how he lost all of his teeth. And he said it was because um, you know, he really had a sweet tooth and he used to trade all of his um, cigarette and vodka rations for chocolate with the other prisoners. So he just ate so much chocolate. So when I was a kid, I really took this as like, you know, a lesson in brushing my teeth and, you know, especially after eating all of my grandmother's cake, like, you know, that this was really important. And, you know, I didn't really think of it in any type of strange or serious way. It's really only been recently when, you know, like, you know, I'll casually talk about my grandfather and say, oh, yeah, like he's a POW in a, in a Russian camp. And people are, first of all, shocked that he survived. And second, just like, you know, sort of blown away by the idea of, of that experience. Um, and it was only like, you know, later on that I started to hear from my dad that, you know, my grandfather really barely survived living in this camp. Um, of course, there was no really medication and of course, the standards, as I said before, for um, the, the camps in Russia were, were very, very low. Um, and my grandfather got pneumonia a couple times. And he was literally on his, his deathbed because the other, or the, I guess, Russian guards and the Russian doctors really just didn't care. Everything for them was black and white. And, you know, he was German and he was bad and he really wasn't a life worth saving. And it didn't matter that, you know he wasn't a member of the SS. Like, he wasn't one of the guys who came in and sort of destroyed the country. It didn't matter that he probably had never actually fired a gun in Russia. It didn't matter that he actually really hated the Nazis himself. Like, he was German and he was bad. And my grandfather still talks about the woman doctor who came in and decided that his life was worth saving. And again, in this sort of miraculous experience, just like with my grandmother, you know, sort of being, being saved in that town square by a Russian officer who came in and decided that her life was worth saving, my grandfather had the same experience. And this woman treated him, gave him the medication he needed, and he survived. When I was in grade 10, I took a 20th century history class, and we were having a debate about the Treaty of Versailles class. And... Um, you know, sometimes I would get pretty nervous about contributing to these types of discussions, but I was like, okay, Treaty of Versailles, World War One. like, I think I feel pretty safe talking about this. So we're having this debate, and I put up my hand to make up a point, and I hear this voice behind me, and I recognize the voice because it was my best friend, and she said to the class and to my teacher, I don't think Catherine should be allowed to participate in this discussion because she's German. <laughs> and... I was just ashamed. I was ashamed and I was embarrassed. And I just kind of sat in my seat and I think my teacher tried to like patch up this situation and be like, oh no, Catherine can contribute. Like, that's fine. Like, she's not responsible for World War One and World War II. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because because recently I was sort of thinking, like, well, maybe she was just trying to like replicate like the actual like historical like situation at like, you know, the Treaty of Versailles. Like, let's just push Germany to the corner and, you know, we'll just have our own like little like you know discussion here so you know in some ways I find it funny now but in some ways it also just makes me really angry and the reason it makes me angry is because she knew me 
She knew I was a really nice person and she knew my family. She'd been over to our house a dozen times. She knew my dad, she knew my mom, she knew my brother. She'd even met my grandfather a few times. So the fact that she was prepared to make this black and white decision, like you're German, you're bad, like you, you cannot contribute to this, just really, really shocks me now. And I understand those black and white decisions. I understand things that happen in, in prison camps in Russia. I understand why people who have had their you know, country destroyed destroyed by the German army would see my grandfather and say, okay, like, you know, we're, you're bad. You're not a life worth saving. But now, like, really, like, you're gonna, you're gonna look at me and say, okay, even though I know you, even though I know, you know, your family and I know you're a good person, you know, you're, you can't contribute to this discussion. And I think that this moment and other similar moments that I've had in my life have really started to make me think of history as more of a culmination of stories. And I think that's how I really want to see history because things aren't black and white. And when you start looking at, you know, history as all of these individual stories coming together, things start to get really fuzzy and things get, start to get complicated and there's a whole lot of gray. And I think that, you know, when I look at my, my grandpa's story, it's so complex. Like there's so much in that story and I have a really hard time like sort of boiling it down and getting it into like, what does my grandpa's story mean? Like, what does it mean to me? And what does it mean overall? And what does it say about Germany and him and all of this stuff? And I think all I can really come up with for my grandpa's story is that it's characterized by sort of this complicated dance that he was having with two things, with choice and with chance. And there was a lot of luck involved in my grandpa's story. You know, there was a bullet that ricocheted off a piano that could have like hit him directly on. There was a German or a Russian um, officer who came into a town and said, you know, you can't kill these people. There was a Russian doctor who decided that my grandpa's life was worth saving. So in some ways, those are all lucky things. But in some ways, those things, um, you know, have to do with choice. That Russian officer made a choice. That Russian doctor made a choice. When my grandfather was finally released from prison camp in 1949, he was sent on a train to West Germany. The only problem is my grandfather, the area that he lived in, was now on the east side. So he had a choice and perhaps the most important choice he would ever have to make in his life. He could stay in West Germany and essentially be free. He could do anything he wanted. He could move to another country in Europe. He could move to Canada. He could do whatever he wanted. Or he could cross that line and go back east and try to find his wife. At this point, he hadn't heard from her in five years. He didn't know if she was alive. He didn't know if she had survived the war, if she had found a way to make it from the east to the west. He didn't know if she just moved to another town. He had absolutely no idea, but he made the choice. He made the choice to cross over from West Germany into east to go to look for my grandmother. And once he'd made that choice, it then took him another 12 years to get out of East Germany and move to Canada. He made that choice, and I don't know exactly how he got back to his hometown. I think he probably took a train part of the way, and he probably went part of the way on foot. But I do know that he arrived back in the town on Christmas Eve. He went right to the house where my grandmother had grown up. He knocked on the door, and she was there. Thank you. Welcome to Confabulation, the podcast, Kat. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, thank you again. I can't say it enough. Thank you so much for sharing that story. 
I guess so many years ago now. Yeah, it feels like it's been it's been a long time. It's sort of weird to listen to it again. Well, can I ask what was it like hearing it again? Were there things that you'd forgotten or things that feel different now? Um, I definitely think there were moments that I had forgotten about, like ways that I was trying to tie my grandfather's story into my own life and my own experience that I'd sort of forgotten about, like moments in high school and things like that. <laughs> so it was kind of fun to listen to it again. <laughs> trying to block those yeah. high school memories out. I, uh, that's actually what I want to really focus on uh, for the first part of this conversation is the way that you wove these two stories together. This is the story I come back to as an example when people want to do something like that. How, I mean, how did you do it? How did you come up with this idea? How did you approach the actual preparation? Well, I think I always knew I wanted to tell my grandfather's story. Um, I just didn't really know how to tell it. It always felt really overwhelming mm-hmm. to me. Like it's a, it's a big story. I didn't really mm-hmm. know how to break it down. I didn't know if it was a story that I could just tell chronologically. I also um, had a hard time finding a way to tell my grandfather's story in a way that felt authentic to me and to what I actually know and understand about what happened to him. Because um, my grandfather and I don't have a lot of discussions about those (laughs) years. It's not something that we sit down and talk about. So a lot of the stories um, that I have are really coming from my grandpa and then going through my, my dad and then coming to me. So it felt sort of like secondhand in some ways. So. And we should say that this isn't because you avoid your grandfather, no. <laughs> but because his language skills are yeah. <laughs> are interesting. Yeah, my grandfather does does speak English, but his English isn't isn't fantastic. And so um we don't have a lot of mm. in-depth conversations about things. Like we certainly have conversations, but they're pretty, I would say like light, light and fluffy <laughs> compared to the stuff that I talked about in this story. Whereas my grandpa will, you know, talk to my dad in German mm. about a lot of these memories and experiences that he, he had. So. And how did you get from the decision that you knew you wanted to tell this story? How did you get from, from that point to the decision that the confabulation was the venue to tell it? Um, I think it felt manageable in some ways. <laughs> That's what I offer, yeah. manageable windows. Well, just having um, having a time limit, which I now, listening to the story again, I'm realizing that I definitely went over that time limit. It's a long story. Well, it's like a but... double story, though, so it's okay. Yeah. I always say that we like to have five to ten minute stories, but you can earn a longer spot. And I I think that is a story that earns a longer spot. Um, So, yeah, it just felt like something that was, you know, it was good for me to have a date on the calendar. Mm. I had to have a story together by a particular date. And, you know, it was sort of a manageable, you know, 15 or so minute, um, (laughs) minute experience. And it's not something that, it's such a big story, I feel like. You know, it could be something something more than that. It could be, you know, a long novel, but I'm not a novelist. It's not <laughs> something I I feel would be manageable for for me to do, but this just felt like a nice sort of little opportunity to tell a story and to also put um put some limits on that mm. story as well. It's interesting because I think now if you were to approach me and I mean, obviously, it's a bit different because we have a relationship. But outside of that, if, if, if a storyteller were to approach me with the idea to tell two stories in this way, I would find that a little bit, I don't know if I'd say strange at first. I'd be hesitant, perhaps. But hearing your two stories together in this way, 
it works for me. It really does. How did you decide to incorporate your own experience with being German with, with the story of your grandfather? Well, again, I think it was that idea of trying to make the story authentic to me and mm. to what I understood about my grandfather's experience. And so many of it's, it's true that so much of what I feel about my grandpa and I think a lot of the sort of unsettled feelings that I had as a kid, like, you know, reading about the Holocaust and learning about the war and, you know, my experiences in high school, like really shaped the way that I saw my grandfather and I understood his story. And I don't think I can separate those two things. Um, so as much as it is two different stories, it really is also, it's sort of one story mm. for me and it's really my grandfather's story filtered through my own experience. And I'm not, you know, pretending that it's, mm. you know, I know every sort of accurate detail of what happened to my grandpa, but this is how I, I understand his mm. story, I guess. Yeah. Have, I know the answer to this question, <laughs> but for purposes of radio, <laughs> Has your family listened to the story? Yes. Well, my parents have listened to the story, so I don't believe my grandfather has okay. listened to the story, but my parents definitely have, and I mean, they they really enjoyed listening to it. It, it meant a lot to them, I think, that mm-hmm. that I told this story, and I mean, they're certainly they knew I was going to tell this story before mm-hmm. I told it, so it wasn't a surprise to them. But um, yeah, they've both listened to it, and they have like shared it with with friends and stuff <laughs> too. So yeah, when they heard the story, I'm just wondering if was there anything in your experiences with being a, a German Canadian that they hadn't been aware of, or anything that they remarked on that was new to them from your experience? I don't think they realized that I was having these sort of chronic nightmares. I know my dad specifically brought that up and he's like, if you were having these nightmares, you could have come and talked to us Hmm. about it. And um, so I don't think that was something I consciously kept hidden from them. It was just one of those things. It was just like another thing that gave me nightmares, just like snakes (laughs) used Hmm. to give me nightmares too. It was just one of those things. And maybe I was too young. I didn't really know how to talk to them about that. so that I know that surprised my dad a little bit. But certainly also, I, I just think of the teachers, the Nazi elimination oh, yeah. game. Is, <laughs> it's so cartoony. I just don't, yeah. I don't believe, I know that this stuff happens. Yeah. I just find it so hard to believe. I mean, was that an experience that you were ever able to talk to with your parents? I don't think I, I, don't think I talked to them about it. And actually at the time, I don't think it even, I know it bothered me, but I don't, I think it bothers me more now, like mm. as an adult thinking about that and thinking Mm. about me as my, you know, 13 or 14 year old self having that experience and just feeling so uncomfortable in the classroom, you know, after having that experience and just feeling really awkward and weird and, you know, and like, how did my teacher know that I would actually have survived and, and stuff like that. And it feels, (laughs) it feels more problematic now than I think it did at the time. So I can't remember talking to my parents about it. Um, Mm. I don't think I did, um, but I could be wrong. <laughs> and so your grandfather hasn't heard the story, so he doesn't know that you've told it, probably? I don't think he knows. Um, okay. I don't think my dad would have would have talked to him about that. I, I don't know if... Um, I don't know if it would bother him to hear that, or I don't know how much he mm. would... I mean, his English is is pretty good. He does watch English TV and, and you know, that kind of thing. So I think he probably understand enough of it but i don't know if he would understand why i told this story right so well my, my follow-up was going to be do you want him to hear it 
I don't think so. Okay. No, I don't think so. And again, I don't know if it's just because I've never had those types of conversations with my grandfather. I've never sat down mm. with him and actually talked about his experiences with the war. Like I've talked to my dad about it. We've had lots of discussions about that. And my grandfather in turn has talked to my dad about, you know, the stuff that he's experienced. So um, I feel comfortable, you know, with my dad listening to the story. In fact, mm. I asked my dad a lot of questions <laughs> as I was putting the story together. Um, but it's just, I, I can't really explain it. I mean, my grandfather's quite elderly now. He's 99. He's going to be a hundred in, um, in August. Still riding so, his bicycle. Still I riding want his the bicycle. internet to know <laughs> grandpa hands still rides his bicycle around town. <laughs> and he's like, he's an excellent health. And I mean, you know, he's, he's still, he's still with it, but it's just, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's something I can't really, really explain why I wouldn't necessarily want him him to hear it i think it's it's a sensitive topic for him and i just i don't know how he'd feel about my feelings about mm -hmm. his story last question about this okay. have you talked about this or shared this podcast with any of your uh your cousins or your brother i mean from that okay. side of the family okay. specifically <laughs> yeah. just or, or to talk to other german canadians about what their experiences were like it's funny. It's one of those things that I feel very comfortable with my parents having listened to it. And I think I would actually, I, I don't know. I think I might feel a little weird promoting it to my aunts and uncles and to my cousins mm. on, on that side of the family. And again, I don't really, really know why. I think there's part of me that's like, well, what if I got some detail wrong or something like that. And then that's what they would like zero in on and be like, actually, Catherine, it was this year and not this year that this happened or, or something like that. Cause that's just sort of, it occurs to me as we're, as we're talking about this, there is a very good chance that they might listen to it now it, in this format. Do you have any message for your extended no. family? If they listen to this podcast no, okay. and get to this point, they can listen to the podcast. It's fine. All right. You hear that cousin, Stephanie? It's okay. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's really great, and it's uh, it's really a remarkable story, and uh, I I am really glad you shared it. Confabulation it is one I always come back to as a cornerstone. Uh, it's certainly one that I've talked to again with a lot of people. Um, what was the reaction for you like that night? Um, it was well. It's funny. The lead up to it was stressful as you know because <laughs> you live with me um True. so probably about four or five days before i was basically like i'm not doing this i can't do this i don't have a story i cannot be prepared and i completely freaked myself out and you were very nice and you're like you don't have to do it if you don't want to but um yeah i managed to sort of pull it together but really it i I probably overprepared for this. And I think it was just that idea that I wanted to weave the two stories together. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to sort of have this snippet from my grandpa's life and then talk about my life and try to find the connections between these moments in, in both of our experiences. And so I made the structure in some ways so complicated that if I hadn't written it out and sort of memorized at least the order of the like little moments that I wanted to talk about, then I feel like I would have got up there and completely like floundered. So actually getting up there, like at the moment when I started to tell the story, I'm like, okay, this is either going to go really well if I remember exactly where I want to go after each sort of moment, or I'm just going to completely 
draw a blank and, and freeze. <laughs> and I think I was just so relieved afterwards that it had gone so well. And so, yeah, it, I mean, it, it felt really good. This is not something that I do on a regular basis. I am not a performer. And um, so it felt really good. And I had a lot of really positive feedback from from people in the audience and, you know, lots of really great questions. People wanted to talk to me about the story at, you know, intermission during the show. And it was really nice. It was, it was yeah, I felt really good and really proud of myself <laughs> for pulling it off. <laughs> as, uh, I mean, you've brought it up, as a non-performer coming to a performative event that is meant to be open to anyone and everyone, um, do you have any advice or, or, or ideas for people who are coming at this as a non-actor? Well, I think the best thing to remember is that the audience is so supportive. And I don't know if you've talked about that already on this podcast, but... Totally possible. I don't okay. <laughs> but it is something that's really nice. It's not... And I know we talk about this all, all the time on our own, but the idea that... Um, the confabulation audience is not an audience that's coming to see a performance per mm-hmm. se. They're not coming to see stand up. They're not coming to sort of judge you and critique you and the way that you, you know, tell a story or present yourself. They're kind of they're there to listen to your story. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there are such positive vibes from the from the audience that I mean, I think even if you're not a performer, as soon as you're standing up there, you're getting a lot of a lot of mm-hmm. su- support from from the people that are uh, yeah that are watching you. And more broadly with storytelling, anything that a, why should a non-performer want to try something like this? Well, I guess it's that, that idea that I know you talk about a lot, that we all have stories, right? And I think that's something that I didn't really necessarily think was true until I started going to confabulation. And then, you know, you hear other people's stories and you're like, wait, I... I have stories too. You have those moments in your life that shape you or those stories in in my case, the sort of, you know, family stories that you've heard all the time that have such an impact on your life. And, you know, and, and I think maybe four or five days before, um, I told the story when I wanted to completely, you know, just give up and not tell the story. It was that feeling like, I'm like, no one else wants to hear this. No one wants to hear my story. It's completely pointless. And then, you realize that's that's not the case. Everyone has stories and they're interesting to other people, but you sometimes just get so in your head that you get caught up with the idea that no one else is gonna gonna care about this, but that's not the point of confabulation. <laughs> what do you like to hear in a story? What do you love when you hear someone else's story? I think I like hearing no, that's a, that's a hard question. <laughs> this is a hard-hitting interview show, yeah. as you know. I think I like hearing, you know, sort of the, about the little moments, right? I mean, I think sometimes people get get caught up in that whole, like, you know, I have to tell this and then this and then this and this and, like, you know, like so much story, which, I mean, I guess I probably tried to do in mine too. So that's, But I think it's, you know, if you can tell a particular moment really well, or, um, yeah, I guess I also am interested in those connections, like, you know, between between you and other people and being able to to talk about those. And I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. I like okay. that because I, I find connection is the thing that I really get into, seeing both how a person's life connects and how a person connects with the audience, with each other. 
I totally agree with you. And maybe it's not, I mean, it's not the idea of like connecting in terms of like, you know, having this big like aha moment about yourself. But I think sometimes when you tell a story about yourself or, you know, you start to think about particular moments, you suddenly realize like how impactful they were and what kind of, yeah, um, I guess like, yeah, what kind of impact like that particular moment had on on your mm-hmm. life and you start to draw connections between other moments in your life and how that all ties together and is kind of neat like yeah mm. <laughs> have you given any thought to a uh, a sequel a part two <laughs> maybe talking about your family's life in eastern europe or i i know from hearing about it coming across <laughs> on a boat to canada um, it's definitely something I've thought about. It's weird. Um, I, I would love to tell sort of the sequel or to tell my dad's story um, mm. in some way because my dad had such an interesting childhood growing up in Eastern Europe and, you know, my grandparents playing essentially the lottery to try to escape um, so that they could could come to Canada where my um grandfather had an uncle so um anyway and my dad did move to canada when he was was 12 on a boat <laughs> in 1962 so took the the slow boat to canada <laughs> across the atlantic ocean and i mean that's quite an experience too like completely starting over um i feel in some ways it's easier to tell my grandfather's story because it's like one level separated from me whereas telling Mm. my dad's story I don't know I feel like my dad sort of would have his own voice and his own spin on it and like maybe he should be the one to tell that story although again I think if I was ever to tell that I would have to find a way that I can connect it to how Mm. sort of how I feel about myself and how I felt growing up and kind of comparing that to my grandfather or to my father's story in this case maybe Mm. so well, I'm certainly looking forward to having you back on the show <laughs> to tell any story, to tell all the stories. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> uh, I just have one last question for you. Sure. <laughs> so um, this August, uh, your grandfather turns 100. That's that right. right. Yes. <laughs> and I think this is really uh, amazing because he's going to turn 100. We're hopefully going to be there. This is a man who started his life in Prussia and then Germany and then Poland and then Canada, uh, so many gener- so many mm-hmm. ages and moments and, and steps. And this August, he's going to turn a hundred. Uh, he's also going to be a grandfather for the first time. Sorry, a great grandfather <laughs> for the first time. Uh, and um, I'm sort of curious how that how you think that's going to change your relationship with him when uh, when you introduce him to his great grandson. Or granddaughter. Or granddaughter. <laughs> who you're giving birth to in July. Congratulations. That was a little bit weird, but we really wanted to work Paula Flalo in this one. Um, we're starting a new generation <laughs> of this family with their own stories and their own ideas. Yeah. And uh, I wish someone would have been filming. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations to both of you. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Um, this isn't awkward at all on the no, radio. <laughs> but uh, this is also, I mean, how I wanted to tell my larger community as well, I guess. Well, it is kind of interesting that it will almost be like exactly 100 years, like mm-hmm. between, you know, birthday you know, to like birthday. Our kid and my grandfather. And it's just weird. I mean, this is, yeah, 
took a weird <laughs> side note, but I mean, we've been watching a lot of Downton Abbey recently. <laughs> and so I've been thinking a lot about that time period, right? Like, you know, my grandfather was born in 1913 and you're just like, wow, like, how is that? How is that possible? Like, you know, he's lived this life from 1913 to, you know, 2013 and potentially hopefully beyond, longer. hopefully longer but you know like so much has changed like the world has changed and it's just it's almost like incomprehensible in some ways you know living that particular century and yeah <laughs> it's amazing to think like just hearing those numbers 1913 2013 it's kind of incredible and uh, i'm very excited for this next story with you yeah <laughs> two big shockers in one episode i'm gonna be a dad <laughs> and also we watch downton abbey i mean <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that we can top this episode. Um, but I'm very excited <laughs> for the next story that's to come. And uh, I hope you are excited to be part of our secret internet. Don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kat, thank you so much for being on the show and for allowing me to, uh, to tell people in this way. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everybody. And uh, have a great day. Or night, or whatever time it is where you are. Bye now. <laughs> you don't seem to play like the others, but you know what is at stake.
today's show was produced by Matt Goldberg and Paula Flalo and featured Catherine Hands. Confabulation is Montreal's premier all-true storytelling series, and our next event takes place on Saturday, March 2nd, as Confabulation presents The Shortest Story. 28 storytellers will have the chance to tell their true-life stories, but within only two minutes. Come check it out at Mainline Theatre here in Montreal. This podcast featured music from Bent by Elephants and Gabrielle Papillon. Confabulation, the podcast, is a monthly podcast produced and distributed by No More Radio. You can find many other great podcasts at nomoradio.com. You can find out more about Confabulation at confabulationmontreal.com or .ca or by looking us up on Facebook. Just remember, we're the storytelling event, not the South Korean fashion magazine. Take care, everybody.